Hello, welcome. This is the Dr. Junkie Show, and I am Ben Boyce, your fearless host. Today is my first review of a TV show, Euphoria. Since I'm a communication guy, this actually seems a little bit overdue. I spoke with Bill Useman a few weeks ago, and we talked about how representations of spaces, which we don't often see in real life, tend to be stickier than representations of everyday spaces. When you see a movie about a faraway country, you're more likely to remember it as factual than when you see a movie about public spaces or an accessible business. That's because you can double-check the grocery store or the hair salon against your own experience, and you can correct any misrepresentations before they stick as if they were facts. But in spaces where we don't get to go very often, spaces like prison or the poor community for many of us, we tend to hold on to those Hollywood representations much tighter because they're all we have. We can't exactly walk into a prison and have a look around. And even if we could, it wouldn't really do us much good because we can't get a good idea of what it's like to live in prison unless we live in prison. And who wants to do that? So we rely on Shawshank and Oz, TV shows and movies, to help us understand what prison's like. And the result is that we all hold this false belief that prison's packed with evil monsters who we must contain for the betterment of society to make sure they don't get us. You can check out my last episode for more on that. It was a great talk with Bill Useman. But today I want to bounce off that conversation and focus on another space where many of us lack actual experience to balance out the bullshit we see on TV. That space is the drug market, and just like prisons or the mental institution or the sex industry or real crime dramas, these subjects attract viewers because of their taboo. When that opening scene in shows like Shawshank and Prison Break show us a massive prison from overhead like a drone shot, something in us just gets interested. HBO's Euphoria has taken full advantage of our human nature. They've ramped up the taboos across the board. Before I go any further, spoiler alert. I'll be discussing season one in the first bonus episode, which was released in December of 2020. Okay, ready? Spoilers coming in three, two, one. Season one of Euphoria is the only full season which currently exists as I'm recording this. In just eight episodes, producers managed to play with not just the normal hyperviolence, which has become par for the course in cable television, but also other cultural taboos, including incest, homophobia and transphobia, abusive relationships, rape and sexual assault, and perhaps most cleverly, our long-standing cultural racialized fear of drugs and those that use them. I won't focus a whole lot on season one, except to say it's Fargo for kids. It's brutal. But it's good. I mean, it's really compelling. And given our cultural zeitgeist, the issues that define this era of U.S. politics and culture, the focus on both trans identity and opioid addiction is a big part of the show's success, the reason we all tune in, sex, violence, and you gross moments notwithstanding. The problem with Euphoria? Well, there's two, actually. And they're the same two problems that show up in all Hollywood representations of drug use, all the way back to Reefer Madness, to the public service announcements a lot of us grew up with throughout the 1990s, and onto the current culture of a million little pieces style catastrophes, which are what we normally see on TV today when it comes to drugs. First, they misrepresent drugs and drug users in dangerous, stigmatizing ways. And second, they reinforce racist stereotypes in the process. Nowadays, producers can draw in a massive audience by associating a script with drug use and trans rights. But once we tune in, they have to nail the recipe of Hollywood spectacle if they want to keep us tuned in. 
They have to show us bad guys whom we know are bad guys. Creeps who we want to see get what's coming to them. They have to show us good guys who we can spot as good guys. And they have to keep us on their side as they encounter struggles. They have to construct innocent characters whom evoke compassion from us as viewers, like the show's main personality, Rue. They need authority figures, sexualized objects, abusive partners, loveless marriages. And all of these things have to be easy to read, easy to spot, hard to misunderstand. And most importantly, producers have to drive the script. Nowadays, that means swerving, jumping, flying, slamming on the brakes. Producers have to compete with social media, big screen blockbusters, hundreds of streaming services, podcasts, YouTube, all the background noise of the 21st century. If they don't, then we won't watch. They aren't monsters or racist jerks. It's the viewers who demand the products that producers compete to sell us. They're just nailing the recipe. Think about those bad guys and how much they've changed over the years. In The Goonies in 1985, the producers used facial disfigurement to make viewers quickly see Sloth as a big scary bad guy. In 1994, Forrest Gump was written in a way that used mental disability, one which the actor Tom Hanks didn't actually struggle with, as a sign to viewers that the main character was trustworthy, a good guy. Life was like a box of chocolates. Neither of these tricks would work today because the recipe has changed. The zeitgeist has changed. And what was once acceptable and desirable can now get you canceled. That's the only reason these stories seem original at all, is the zeitgeist change. Emotions like jealousy or rage, stories like infidelity or murder, issues with addiction or mental illness, these are not original ideas. But the packaging changes like clockwork. And what we demand as consumers says a lot about what we believe as individuals. So let's start with racism. There's a drug dealer named Mouse, played by actor Miko Gattuso, one of just a few men of color on the cast. Miko was a Latin king before he took up acting, and his facial tattoos, along with his non-white skin and slang-filled accent, stoke up this creepy feeling in us as viewers long before he sexually assaults the show's main character, Rue. And the producers really went all out in one scene, where the reefer madness trope of drug pusher who won't take no for an answer plays out in high definition. This is a clip from season 1, episode 2. And to give you just a little bit of background, 17-year-old Rue is an addicted opioid user who recently stopped using. She winds up in a living room where a drug deal is going down between Mouse and a small-time local dealer, a white guy named Fezco. And fuck if this big-time drug dealer Mouse isn't scary. I mean, that's the point, right? about you, little sis? You ever try fentanyl? You know that feeling when you come so hard that you can't feel or hear shit? You like that feeling? Well, shit. You know, I love this. Okay, already we're in trouble. The reason that the general public supports such a violent and unnecessary war on drugs is because they think that the war is necessary. They think that drug users become violent criminals, that drugs make us lose control, and that those of us who use them are just trying to feel super good, like we're having an orgasm, while everybody else has to feel all normal. How unfair is that? Not to mention, they think that dealers are monsters, like Mouse. And bullshit like this scene is part of the reason. Fentanyl doesn't make you feel like you're coming so hard that you can't think. It makes you ass out. It's kind of the exact opposite. Fentanyl is a heavy opioid, ten times stronger than pure heroin, and its effects are much like heroin, or morphine, or Vicodin. 
Opioids are drugs of satisfaction. They don't make us feel like we're skydiving or having an orgasm. They make us feel like we already did those things. They give us the satisfaction that would normally come afterward. I'm not saying that some drugs don't, to some degree, stimulate those same feelings like an orgasm. Crack is pretty orgasm-like for the first few hits. What I'm saying is that most people don't do fentanyl, and they don't know anyone who does do fentanyl. They haven't seen it, they don't know what it smells like or how it tastes, and they don't even know how it's consumed. They certainly don't know why people are using it and what it does when you take it. So when they see depictions like this one, they know that it's probably based in the truth, at least a little bit, and so they walk away knowing a little bit more about fentanyl than they did before they watched the scene. A little bit more about the people that sell it. It doesn't matter that it's all bullshit. They know it anyway. What, you don't trust me? Yo, for real, man. She's good. Shut the fuck up, bitch. Ain't nobody talking to you. Tell your big brother I'm not talking to him right now. Tell him shut the fuck up. Come on, don't be scared. It's not gonna bite you. Come on, try it. Terrifying, right? But what the hell? Drug dealers don't treat their customers like that any more than the manager at your local Wendy's would treat patrons like that. This dude is written in as a pure monster, a threat to youthful innocence, which is portrayed by Rue's struggle to stay sober. And the writers laid it on thick. Even though he's normally all about his cash, the second he spots 17-year-old Rue, Mouse becomes a sex-crazed maniac, determined to sexually assault her in front of numerous witnesses. The writers weren't very stealth in this scene. Euphoria is set in a rich, mostly white suburb, a Beverly Hills 90210 type community. The war on drugs has always relied on portrayals of people of color terrorizing white women and children. And that's why this scene is so easy for us to make sense of. It hits quick. You like the way that feels? So he forces Rue to take a hit of fentanyl off the end of his knife. And then once it kicks in, he tries to charge her, even though she's mostly unconscious. It's gonna cost you 300. Um, Come on, pay up, little sis. I only have $2. I said 300. I got a strict no return policy. Yo, Mouse, let me pay for it, man. I thought you was too good for fentanyl. What is it? Everybody changing their motherfucking minds on me? She can't afford it. She's gonna have to find another way to pay me. Straight up. Okay. Yo, man, just let me pay for it. It's gonna cost you 600 now, man. Straight up. You get that shit. Mm-hmm. It's always a pleasure doing business with you. Bad business practices aside, there's a lot going on in this scene. And don't get me wrong, it's not that I have a problem with representations of rape or sexual assault. Sure, these things happen and we should talk about them. But when the person who is committing a violent sexual assault in front of witnesses is a person of color and is a person who has tattoos on their face, and is a person who talks like they're from the hood, and is a person who's selling drugs. Well, all of these things just get wound up together, and in our minds, we remember them all as representations of a monster. Okay, on to the latest episode. This was first released in December of 2020, while COVID restrictions still had us all locked down. The shoots were minimal, and the episodes were supposed to fill the gap between the end of season 1 and the start of season 2, since filming hasn't even begun yet. Anyway, this episode was mostly just two people talking about addiction. No smashed up cars or exploding buildings, just compelling dialogue. And that's the problem. We watch it and pay attention. And just like when they make bad guys who we can tell are bad guys before they say a single word, 
The rest of the plot also works best when it aligns with what we all know is coming anyway. The problem is, is that you look at sobriety as a weakness in the face of those issues. And what I'm saying is, sobriety is your greatest weapon. Because this whole bullshit about being a functioning drug addict, about finding balance, that ain't true, that's a lie. It's not a lie. It's a lie whether you know it or not, but more importantly, I don't give a fuck to hear it. Okay, so here we go again with that same old cultural lie of balance being impossible. But we all know people who balance their weed use, or who drink coffee every day, or who take prescription pain pills for a back injury, or even take cocaine recreationally without their lives falling apart. Nowadays, a decade after marijuana legalization became a reality in places like Colorado, it's hard for those of us who live here to even think about marijuana as a debilitating drug anymore. I mean, sure, people can experience negative impact from overusing marijuana, or from using it if it doesn't agree with their unique neurochemistry, but as soon as it was legal, we started thinking about it differently as a culture, and more importantly, it got cheap and easy to find. And because of those two factors, legality and affordability, marijuana is no longer thought about like it once was. It's not just weed, though. Most of us know people who use cocaine or opioids or so-called study drugs, amphetamines like Adderall or Ritalin, without their lives falling apart. These folks have a lot of reasons to keep their drug use a secret, especially considering the beliefs that many of us still hold about drugs and those who use them, so we don't hear about them very often. But we do know another story, and that story paints drug use as unavoidably debilitating. The story we hear most often in the United States, from 12-step meetings to Hollywood fictions to church pulpits to dare officers, is a story of unavoidable destruction. Drugs will get you addicted and your life will no fall apart. says, I want to be a junkie when I grow up. Say no to drugs and say yes the thrill to life. can kill. We're told they always cause negative health consequences, they ruin careers, they destroy marriages, a long list of scary things that don't actually happen very often. Remember, 80% of people who use even the most socially stigmatized drugs like heroin, cocaine, or methamphetamine will never struggle with addiction. Ever. We don't pay attention to these stories because they're drowned out by the horror stories, the cautionary tales of addiction always leading to death. And because of that, we feel a deep sense of shame about our drug use. Euphoria is like a mirror. It shows us an easy-to-understand image of addiction. And one thing we know in the United States, a century into the war on drugs that's still causing 76,000 preventable overdose deaths every year, is that addiction makes us less valuable than those who don't share that label. Yeah, not a drug addict because you're a piece of shit. You're a piece of shit because you're a drug addict, you follow? You didn't come out of the womb an evil person. You, Rue, came out of the womb a beautiful baby girl who unbeknownst to her had a couple of wires crossed. So when you try drugs for the first time, it uh, sets something off your brain that's beyond your control. And it isn't a question of willpower. It's not about how strong you are. You've been fighting a losing game since the first day you got high. So you can destroy your life, you could fuck your little sister's head up, you could abuse and torture and take for granted your mama and sit here and look me in the eye and say as calm as can be, as cool as a cucumber, I'ma keep using drugs. <laughs> that is the disease of addiction. It is a degenerative disease. It is incurable, it is deadly, and it's no different than cancer. And you got it. One more time. Addiction is not a disease. It's best thought of as a learning disorder. And drug use is only addiction if we have negative consequences stemming from our excessive use. 
The idea that addiction naturally makes us pieces of shit is the linchpin that keeps the war on drugs chugging billions of dollars which would be better spent on education, instead funding prisons and warriors. The crimes we commit, the life spirals, the turning inward, these aren't the result of drugs. They're the result of whatever was going on that made us turn to drugs. And they're the result of the environment in which we live. Drugs don't get us in trouble. The laws, the policies, the enforcement, our criminalization, that's what gets us in trouble. The tough love, the unlabeled products, the inflated prices, the underworld violence, these are the daily dangers facing drug users, not heroin poisoning. There's no such thing. Now, I want to give credit along with my bashing. There are a few positive representations of drug users packed between the shredding of us as worthless and dangerous until we stop using. But by and large, the point of this episode was shame and stigma, a repackaged version of the 12 steps or nothing rhetoric we've all been listening to for a century, even though we know it isn't the only way to be successful. 12-step programs work great for some people, for a lot of people, and if they work for you, please keep using them. But they don't work for everyone, and the things you learn in a 12-step program can actually work against you when you realize that you don't want to follow that plan, either temporarily or long-term. This idea of being clean or dirty with no third alternative is responsible for the thought process that goes into serious binging. We're trained in 12 steps that relapse is a part of recovery, and it is. But we're also trained to think of it as time away, as failure, as headed rapidly towards a rock bottom. And that's an issue. When you feel like your entire purpose in life is to stay sober, and then you take one Vicodin, well shit, you may as well take 10 if you're going to get high anyway. Instead of practicing responsible use or finding tools for maximizing the positive effects of small doses, we tend to think of any drug use as the nothing portion of all or nothing. As if once we get off the wagon of recovery, there's nothing good going for us until we get back on. Because for some people, there is no rock bottom. It's bottomless. And the truth is, drugs will fundamentally change who you are as a human being. Every moral, every principle, everything you hold close to your heart and believe in will go out the window or down the drain. Because there's no force stronger on planet Earth than that next fix. You may be functioning. Maybe things go well. Maybe they last. Maybe they don't. But the one thing I know is true is that the longer you do drugs, the more you're going to lose. And not just in terms of the things you love, but the things you value about yourself. And every compromise you make, every moral line that you cross, you'll go further and further until you don't recognize who the fuck you are. And that list of racing thoughts, that list of unforgivable things, it grows longer and gets uglier. There it is again, that conflation of drug use with immorality. And the only thing he can even be talking about is criminal activity, stealing, sex work, dealing drugs, all the things that users sometimes do because the drugs we could purchase for a few pennies if they were legal instead cost tens or even hundreds of dollars. It isn't the drugs that make us steal, it's the price. And that's a pretty easy problem to fix. We just don't want to do it as a society. They also reinforce the 12-step mantra of not dating during recovery. 
of remaining single so that you can devote every ounce of your energy to not giving in and using drugs. And I've heard this a lot in 12-step meetings, this idea that you should just forget a lot of the other important things going on in your life so you can devote all your time and energy to just not using. And sure, some people need to do just that, to devote a lot of energy to slowing down or even stopping their use. But that story is not the rule, it's the exception. Ms. Marsha, how long have you been clean? 17 years, by the grace of God, 17 years. Never thought I'd be able to say that, but I say it with a lot of pride. What would happen if uh, you thought about dating in the early stages of you trying to get clean? I had to not be in a relationship so that I could focus on my sobriety because that's what I wanted, and I didn't have enough energy for both of those, and I wanted to get clean. That's right. Along with this idea of being either on the program or off the program, of being either clean and sober or failing, of being either clean or dirty, there's also this idea of not dating while you work on yourself. And again, I'm not saying that this isn't something that can be very beneficial to some people, but this goes hand in hand with this idea that drug use always leads to immorality or to destruction or to death. I mean, come on, we can do better than this in 2020. Not just in our 12-step meetings, although we should be working on it there too, but in our Hollywood representations of those meetings, of those spaces. There are millions of 12-steppers getting together this week to do exactly what this episode portrayed, to have some pancakes or coffee and talk about struggles with addiction. And I'm not discrediting the work that y'all are doing. It's fucking hard to be an addicted person, and I see you. I'm on your side. Keep it up if it works for you. If you found that your best quality of life is total sobriety and the battle to maintain it, good. But the idea that all of that goes away the second you mess up and have a single drink or a single drug goes hand in hand with the idea that those who are still using drugs are messing up, that they're different, that they're failing. Now I get it. You might not be able to drink every day or smoke crack once in a while or use pills or huff whippets at a party on the weekend without things going to shit. But that doesn't mean that everyone is wired up the same as you. We all know that a lot of people aren't. The reason that 12-step programs appear to work so well is because they were tailor-made to appeal to the people who grew up in the United States. There are a lot of parallels between AA and U.S. culture. The idea of a society guided by free speech is reflected in unofficial meetings with anonymous members held in neighborhood basements. God grant me the, serenity the use of group mantras chanted as a source of strength and identity feels normal because of our cultural artifacts like the Pledge of Allegiance or the National Anthem. Most members of U.S. society learn to mindlessly chant things early in life. But the biggest catch has to do with God, or a higher power, as members say. The problem isn't so much the inclusion of a higher power as the conception of what that higher power looks like. It turns out that in the United States, our higher power is almost always a way to describe ourselves in a self-centered manner. Our higher power isn't a compassionate entity whom we graciously thank for the rise in our country's standard of living or for a lower unemployment rate this year than last. Instead, most of the time when we evoke God's name, it's usually to thank him for things that we would otherwise have to think critically about, for things that benefited us. Rue actually talks about this a little bit in the episode, but it's something I've been saying for a long time. When you thank God for saving you from a car crash or for keeping you healthy, or in the case of 12-step programs, for giving you the strength to stay sober when others fail, 
You're silently blaming God for the failure of your fellow AAers and the death of those whom God didn't save from the car accident today, even as he chose to save you. That's a pretty self-important view of yourself. Blaming God doesn't change that. The United States is a culture of selfish and self-centered people, but we don't like to admit those things, even to ourselves, because if we did, then we'd have to work on it. So instead, we blame God for making us the center of the universe, and then we bestow constant praise on him or her for making it clear that our life is more important than the lives of others, because ours was worth saving. That sort of nonsense only holds water if you already see yourself as the center of the universe. Otherwise, your response to avoiding a crash that somebody else was caught up in would be remorse and sorrow for that person at the unfair system. That's no fun. 12-step programs work so well for a lot of people because they appeal to our already existing programming. They're tailor-built for our society. One more time, 12-steppers are great, and 12-step programs work great for many people. I'm not trying to hate on y'all. But just like many belief systems in the United States, it's hegemonic. It demands those in the group conform to a certain standard of success. The only requirement is a desire to stop drinking or taking drugs. Unfortunately, that standard is harmful to those who don't fit the mold. But culturally, it's all we know at this point. It wouldn't be that hard to remake drug use in our public spaces or to give us new imaginations to think about it. Stories that define it as improving our quality of life. But so far, producers have made the most cash off appealing to our worst fears and our stereotypes. And those portrayals cause the support of a permanent expansion of our prison industrial complex. Because fuck if Mouse's character isn't a scary dude. As a viewer, I might believe that we need a super secure prison to protect the rest of us from his abusive bullshit. But Mouse doesn't exist. He's just a distillation of our own cultural fears. Racist, sexist, classist, and ableist. All reflected back at us through a lens that hides their origin. Until we weed those internal biases out of ourselves, producers who connect with them will continue to see greater success than those who offer alternative narratives. It's a two-way street. After all that, I still recommend this bonus episode, although season one is a straight-up pulp fest. But the discussion you'll see in the bonus episode between two members of a group, between a sponsor and a sponsee, it's a powerful conversation. You can probably tell that just from the few short clips that I played. And misguided as they sometimes are with the script, these are some of the few cultural narratives that exist about addiction. And we have to start talking about and thinking about addiction and drug use in different ways and publicly, like this episode. Because if we don't, 76,000 overdose deaths will only be the beginning. Love yourselves and the addicted people in your life. I'm your host, Ben Boyce.